John chapter 5. We'll be reading uh, John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Would you please stand in honor of the word of our Lord? John chapter 5, uh, verses 31 to 47. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the witness that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light, for the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me is himself born witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and not the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week we saw how the Pharisees had tried to level two accusations against Jesus. They accused him of Sabbath breaking because he had healed a lame man on the Sabbath and had told him to take up his bed and walk. And they accused him of blasphemy because in calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. And these were very serious charges conviction of either warranted the death penalty under the Mosaic law. Exodus 31, 14 and 15 declares, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. And for blasphemy in Leviticus 24:16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. We've already seen that Jesus didn't ever break the Sabbath. At least he didn't break God's law with respect to the Sabbath. He did, however, break the man-made law of the Pharisees. He did also make himself equal with God. Now, of course, the Pharisees were actually motivated by hatred of God, but it was primarily these two things that they used as an excuse in order to, to try to kill him. Of course, they were, they were judging with wrong judgment, and their judgment will judge them. In making these allegations against Jesus, they were condemning themselves. So in John 5, verses 31 to 47, Jesus calls witnesses in his defense. 
But these witnesses also prosecute the Pharisees, proving that they didn't really love God. Last week, Jesus called on the witness of John the Baptist. He called John the Baptist to his defense. Then he called on something greater, his own works. This week, we're going to see how Jesus ratchets up the caliber of his witnesses even higher by calling on God the Father and calling on the Holy Scriptures as his witnesses. So the works of Jesus demonstrated that the Father had sent him, and John the Baptist had, had declared that he was the Messiah. And although John's testimony was great, the testimony of his works were greater, and the testimony of the Father is even greater again. The Apostle John said in 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So Jesus continues in verse 37 with the witness of God the Father. He says, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. He'll say a similar thing in, in John chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So what does Jesus mean here when he says that the Father bears witness to the Son? Well, commentators are divided on this. Some believe that he is referring to the testimony of Holy Scripture. I don't believe that's, that's actually the case because Jesus goes on in verse 39 to talk directly about the testimony of Scripture. Others believe it is the, eternal, the internal rather witness, but the context doesn't bear that out. Still others believe that it is the direct proclamation, the voice from heaven, and I believe that this is the most likely explanation. There's three times that in Scripture that the Father directly spoke in relation to the Son. At his baptism, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and just prior to the crucifixion. At this point in Jesus' ministry, only the first had actually taken place. After his baptism, the Spirit descended like a dove on him, and a voice declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father is bearing direct witness to the Son. All three members of the Trinity were present, but it is the Father's testimony that is referred to here. Now there's some speculation as to why John doesn't include this detail. When John is talking about the baptism of Jesus, he only mentions the Spirit descending. He doesn't talk about the testimony of the Father, and he doesn't even actually mention the baptism itself. F.F. F. Bruce suggests that this is because the readers of John's Gospel were likely familiar of the story of Jesus' baptism and were able to fill in this detail by themselves. But whatever the reason, the other three Gospel accounts clearly testify to the direct and audible witness of the Father to the Son. Now the second audible witness of the Father to the Son is at the Mount of Transfiguration. When the Father declares from the cloud, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. Now the third is, is a witness for the Son, but a little bit more um, indirectly. So please turn in your Bible to John chapter 12. 
This takes place at a, a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. This is at the end of his public ministry, and we're now leading up to the events directly preceding the crucifixion. And so Jesus prays in in verse, well, Jesus says in verse, sorry, in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So he prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so the events of the cross are going to be a powerful, one of the, the most powerful, if not the most powerful, example that we have of the glorification of God in all the scriptures. As the Father's wrath is poured out on the Son in our place. As Jesus willingly goes to the cross, demonstrating his love and his mercy and his grace for us. Now the Pharisees hadn't been witness to any of these testimonies, but even still this is undeniable proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And it also serves as an indictment against the Pharisees. So Jesus continues in verse 37. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. They had never heard the voice of the Father and they had never seen his form. This is similar to Deuteronomy 4.12. While Moses was, was receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the Israelites were there at the base of the mountain. And Moses writes, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. In Exodus 20, Moses described the same event. Verse 19, the people say, You, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but, we, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Now this quickly proved to be untrue as the Israelites didn't listen to either God or Moses. We're going to talk more about Moses in a moment, but Jesus goes on with his indictment against the Pharisees in verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking had heard the voice of God. They had seen his form. They had seen and heard it in Jesus, but they didn't believe in him. Jesus was the Word become flesh, John 1.14. John 8.19 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at his Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. The Pharisees said to him, Where is your Father? In John 8. And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And when Philip said to Jesus in John 14, 8, Show us the father, Jesus replied, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, Show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father, and the father is in me? The writer of Hebrews said the same thing, essentially in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. He said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God has spoken in the Son. God has appeared in the Son. And the, failure, the Pharisees' failure to believe in Jesus proved that they didn't know God. Matthew Henry says that they showed themselves to be as ignorant of God that though they professed it relation to him, as we are of a man that we have never either seen nor heard. So the Pharisees had presented themselves as being representatives of God before the people. They had set themselves up as the religious authorities. But they didn't even know the one that they claimed to represent. Herman Ritterboss explains that when Jesus then is telling the Jews that however much they as people of the law pride themselves on their knowledge of God, they are barred from every form of direct access to God, that they are dependent and they are dependent on the testimony of others. I pray that that wouldn't be able to be used to describe any of us here claiming to know God while being separated from Him, having no direct personal knowledge of God apart from a vicarious knowledge, the knowledge that comes through the experience of others, not knowing Him personally. You can find a lot out about God by listening to solid preaching and reading books written by faithful men and spending time with the godly people around you, but you need to meet Him for yourself. You need to hear Him for yourself. That is true so often of, of, of children who rely on their parents' witness, on their parents' testimony. And then when they get out from, from their parents' home, they prove very quickly when the temptations of the world come that they were never really lovers of God. They have to own Jesus for themselves. Children here, you have to know Jesus yourself. You can't rely on the faith of your parents. You need to hear him and to believe him on your own. Maybe hard to believe, but, but now with, with this next verse in verse 39, Jesus is ratcheting up the caliber of his witnesses even higher. He's going to a more, a more sure word. Please turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Peter says that they didn't follow cleverly devised myths, myths when they made known the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring here to the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus took Peter and James and John and for a moment his, his glory was revealed. When Jesus was, was here in human flesh, his majesty, his glory was veiled. But there on the Mount of Transfiguration for a moment and, and even that will pale in comparison to when his glory is finally revealed, but they got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus on that mountain. And Peter testifies that when Jesus had received 
honor and glory from the Father, and the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard that voice. We ourselves heard his very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is saying here that he heard for himself, along with James and John, heard the direct and audible testimony of the Father to the Son. But as amazing as it is, he says that we have something even more guaranteed than that. Even more guaranteed than the voice of the Father. He is saying here that the words of Scripture are more sure than even that voice that they heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Think about that. The words of Holy Scripture are a fuller confirmation of God the Son than even the voice of the Father. Now, of course, none of us have ever heard the Father's voice. But we have the Bible. We have a better confirmation. We would do well, as Peter says, to pay attention. Now, I've heard many people say that they, that they talk to God. Great. And I've also heard some say that God talks to them. Even better. But the question is how they believe that God talks to them. I know people who say that God talks to them in an audible voice. But if that's the case, then the canon of Scripture is not closed, and there's another authority beyond that of Scripture. And there's churches, even churches here in, in this city, that, that they would pit the testimony of Scripture against the so-called words of God, the voice, audible voice of God. I had a discussion with a lady at the hospital. I felt a little bit bad that I was, was there to, to encourage Caleb, and, and this lady kind of butted in on her conversation who goes to, uh, to one of the local churches where, it's, where, the, where there's things that are done and said that actually deny what Scripture teaches. Clearly deny what Scripture teaches. And I had a conversation with one individual about, about, a, about an issue in their church and something that where they are teaching and doing something that is contrary to Scripture and demonstrated to him what the Scripture says. And he said, I see that. But the Spirit says otherwise. Think about that. Think about it. When people hear a so-called audible voice from God, which is subjective, it can be so easily misunderstood. It can be so easily misinterpreted. It could so easily be a demonic voice. But we have the voice of Scripture. We have something more sure. We have something by which we can compare and measure every spirit. We have ultimate truth in the Word of God. Peter continues in verses 20 and 21, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
when God inspired the men to write his holy word, he made sure that everything that was said was accurate. Verbal plenary inspiration, every word was inspired by God. God's word alone is authoritative, infallible, sufficient. So in verse 39, Jesus turns to the witness of the scriptures. He says to the Pharisees in verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The way to eternal life is found only in God's word, whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15-16, that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul here was referring to the writings of the Old Testament. The Pharisees had access to the entire Old Testament, but through them, they never gained access to God. The Pharisees searched the scriptures looking for eternal life, but even though it was right there in front of them, they refused to believe. They missed it altogether. Jesus was, when Jesus said to them that they searched the scriptures, they, didn't know what it, they did not know what it meant. Jesus is also pointing to the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. He says in verse 46 that Moses wrote of him. In John 1.45, Philip, one of the first disciples, found Nathanael and said to, him, said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24.27, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that conversation? But beloved, we have access to that same information every time we open our Bibles. The Son is in the events of the Old Testament. The son is seen in the, as the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head while his heel is bruised in Genesis 3.14. The son is seen in the first sacrifice of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21. The son is seen in the flood, saving a remnant of the earth, Genesis 9. The son is seen in the animal sacrificed in his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. The son is seen wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32. The son is seen in the burning bush. He is the I Am of Exodus 3. The son is seen in the slaughter of the lambs at the first Passover in Exodus 12. The son is seen in the bronze serpent of Numbers 21. The son is seen in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. The son is also seen in the patriarchs of the Old Testament. The son is seen as in Adam, our federal head, Genesis 2. The son is seen in Abraham, the father of a new race, 
Genesis 12. The son is seen in Isaac about to be sacrificed by the father in Genesis 22. The son is seen in Joseph sold into slavery and misjudged to save many people in Genesis 50. The son is seen in Joshua leading the people into the promised land in Joshua 1. The son is seen in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi in Ruth chapter 4. The son is seen in David, the anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. The son is also seen in the prophecies of the Old Testament. The son is seen as the, the son is the son who is given in Isaiah 9:6. The son is seen in the servant songs of Isaiah and especially in the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. The son is seen as the ancient of days in Daniel 7 and the anointed one cut off in Daniel 9:26. The son is seen in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. The son is seen in the one who is as the one who is pierced in Zechariah 12:10. The Pharisees had all of these witnesses, but they refused to acknowledge the son. Try as they might to search the scriptures, they were blind. They didn't see him, even though he was right there in front of them. It's all about Jesus. And these same words serve as witnesses for Jesus, and they serve as witness against the Pharisees. Here was Jesus, the one the scriptures were all about, and the Pharisees didn't recognize him. Spurgeon said, you're a Bible reader, and your eye glances over the holy words, but you do not see Jesus in every page, then your reading has failed. May that never be applied to us. There is so much access to preaching. Within seconds, you can, can have access to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of sermons on any given passage of Scripture. But if they do not point to Jesus, then they have failed. And not only have they failed if they do not point to Jesus, but they actually prove themselves to be enemies of Jesus. We have a responsibility to measure. To measure everything that we hear. Every word that claims, thus saith the Lord. Measure it against Holy Scripture. You have the mandate, the command, to do that with my words. And if there's anything that I say that does not line up with, with Holy Scripture, then you have the responsibility to reject it, and you have the responsibility to talk to me about it. You especially have the responsibility to talk to God about it. Beloved, we all have God's word at our fingertips. Let us search our Bibles. Let us study our Bibles and see how they point to Christ. Not out of any legalistic duty. But because we love Christ and we want to know him more because God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit 
and in truth. If I tell you that I love my wife, but don't want to spend any time with her, and don't take the time to, to get to know her, what she, how she, how she thinks, her likes, her dislikes, the things that please her and displease her. If I don't take the time to do that, I am proving, no matter what I say, I'm proving that I don't really love her. How much more important is it then? that we should, we who claim to love God, would show that we love God by studying His Word and by searching for His face. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. And He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. But the Pharisees refused to come to Him that they might have life. Jesus didn't need them. Jesus didn't need the Pharisees. He, he said in verse 34 that he didn't receive the testimony of men. He doesn't need the Pharisees or their witness. As the so-called religious authorities of the time, they were expected to be apprised of, of religious goings-on. Remember that they had sent priests and Levites to go to, to, to check out John the Baptist. They'd come to interrogate Jesus when he cast out the money changers and the livestock of the temple. They asked him for a sign that, was a, that would give him the authority to do these things. But Jesus didn't need their mark of approval. Jesus didn't need the Pharisees. He adds in verse 41 that he doesn't receive glory or praise from the Pharisees either, from the Pharisees either. He wasn't looking for praise from the Pharisees or from any unbeliever for that matter. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows that they do not have the love of God within them. Verse 42. When somebody who does not truly love God claims to do so, it's hypocrisy. there just a little bit of the hypocrite in each one of us? Don't we all tend to rely on our works? Rely on our righteousness? Rely on our good deeds? Don't we all sometimes fail to worship Jesus as he really is? May the Lord cleanse us from these things. May the Lord apply His righteousness, which He has done in the cross. We don't stand before God because we are not hypocrites. We stand before God because we have been given His righteousness. And because of His righteousness, the hypocrisy is being stripped away from our lives in the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus came in the Father's name, but they did not receive him. He came as a representative of the Father, and they didn't accept him. They rejected him. They're unable to receive him because they seek glory from one another, not the glory that comes from God alone. In John 12, 40, Jesus indicted them by saying that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
And I don't know about you, but but for myself, far too often, I'm more like the Pharisees in this sense, in fearing man, but not fearing God. Now, some of you have heard this story, but I never would have thought that I was one who struggled with, with fear of man. But it, it takes different manifestations in different people's lives. Some people dress to impress. Some people like to use big words that, that make them look intelligent. Some people like to put up a show uh, of, being, of being righteous before other people, but when they're alone, their life looks different. And I wouldn't have known that I struggled with any of these things until I went to seminary. And it's, it's interesting that there was, it wasn't just in my own case, but there was actually a number of other individuals in whom the Lord was doing a similar work. And it was like God was putting on a clinic in the fear of man. And every time I turned around, the Lord was exposing it in my heart and dealing with it, helping me to deal with it. One example was a, a sermon that I heard from my pastor on Galatians 1.10, where the Apostle Paul said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I went on to, uh, to write a paper in one of my classes on something that's called social anxiety disorder. And, and my intention was to help individuals that I knew that who had been diagnosed with this, this latest flavor of the month psychological label, social anxiety disorder. It's, it's essentially the fear of man. And as I wrote this paper to try to help other people, I realized this is me. This is me. I struggle with this too. And God began to expose this and to deal with it in my heart. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm entirely free from it. But when I look at my life now compared to where it was at four years ago, there is measurable growth. And I, I knew at that time that I could never be a pastor struggling with fear of man because if, if, as, as Abraham Lincoln said you can please some of the people some of the time but you can never please all of the people all the time now if I came up into this pulpit and tried to please each one of you I would have to preach 80 something different sermons every Sunday so by God's grace I've decided to forget about that as much as I can and instead try to please God and in so doing, some people are going to be offended with some of the things that they hear. But I pray again that by God's grace, that each one of us would submit to what God's Word says. You're not submitting to what I say. Submit to what God's Word says, where what I say lines up with God's Word. Accept it. Allow God's Word to change you with the power of His Holy Spirit. And if it doesn't, we've already talked about what you need to do then. Finally, Jesus tells them in, in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe 
my words. We've already seen how not just the writings of Moses, but the entire Old Testament points to Christ. But the Pharisees had their reliance on Moses. They had their reliance on a, an obedience that they could manufacture. They had their reliance on their own righteousness, on their own works. D.A. Carson explains that in the great trial on the last day, it will not be Jesus who presses the charges and prosecutes the Jews he is addressing. His primary purpose is to save, not condemn. In any case, there is no need for him to assume this role. Moses will be their accuser, the very Moses whom they esteem so highly as the mediator of the Sinai Covenant, the one through whom God has given the law they so highly venerated. They saw Moses as being on their side. In his day, Moses had interceded for the people of Israel. But Moses' day was done. Moses couldn't help them. His writings would condemn them and reveal their guilt. Like the self-righteous young ruler in Luke 18, appealing to his own obedience to inherit eternal life, but proving his guilt by placing his money before God and love for self above his neighbor, and refusing to sell his possessions and follow Jesus. The Pharisees condemned their themselves at every point of God's law. Roman Catholics pray to various saints to intercede for them. There is no intercessor apart from God. Moses isn't interceding for anybody anymore. We have a an infinitely greater intercessor in God the Son. Our only advocate before the Father is Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. He is interceding for us, Romans 8, 34. He is the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7, 25. But the Pharisees rejected they rejected any hope that they could have had. They rejected the scriptures, and they rejected Jesus. But even though they didn't understand the scriptures, they unwittingly fulfilled them. I find it amazing that Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Jesus, prophesied in John 11:50, saying, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for, for you that one man should die for the people, not knowing that the whole, not, sorry, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, is prophesying about the death of Jesus for his people. This is amazing. John goes on to explain what's happening in the following verses. Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Peter says the same thing in his sermons in, in Acts against the Pharisees. He said, according to the determined plan of God, you crucified him. It was God's plan, but you did it. did it. In Acts 13.27, 
those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So in conclusion, will our failure to recognize the Son as the radiance of the glory of God be indictment against us on that day? Who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the one true God? Or are you worshiping a God of your own imagination? the relativistic God of, of this culture where you can have 20 different people having 20 different, different opinions about who God is and they can all be right. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not Jesus Christ. If you truly want to know who Jesus is, Search for him in his word. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find him. And you will be able to worship him in spirit and